Good morning. This morning's reading comes from Galatians 4, 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom am I? I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You may be seated. Well, I know we just prayed, but let me pray for us again. Father, I pray this morning that as I carry out my task and calling this morning to proclaim and expound God's word, that I might, by the power of your Holy Spirit, exhort your church to know deeply your heart for us. Most of all, that your name would be praised and magnified. Lord, would you help me to communicate these truths well, that we might hear and respond with faith. I pray both for the persons here that may feel like an outsider and for the regulars, that we might hear and respond with faith, that you might grant the, necess- the faith necessary to believe, to believe that you love us, that you call us to be part of your family. May the Holy Spirit stir our hearts to bring about conviction, repentance, belief. May we exalt you, worship you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. 23 years ago, I stood outside the crematorium at Forest Lawn Cemeteries, and the Lord changed my, my life. Along with two others, I witnessed a good friend and her mom kneeling, crying in anguish, and most poignant of all, they were pulling with all their might on the robes of the officiating traditional Buddhist monks. Can't you do anything to bring daddy back? They would cry between sobs. Meanwhile, these Buddhist monks, though moved with compassion, continued on with their, with their chants and rituals and that oh-so-incessant ringing of the bell as the funeral directors closed the curtains, put my friend's dad's casket into the furnace. This would be my first Buddhist funeral, completely foreign to me as a man who had grown up in a predominantly Christian household. I realized that that many of you don't know me too well. And so let me just give you a a very brief biography. While I may look like I'm from Hong Kong, je suis en fait québécois. 
That always gets people. I was born in Montreal. Bible stories and church attendance were part of growing up. I came to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior at the, at the young age of nine. Most of my life, I was keenly aware of the Holy Spirit's presence within me, and I had early on a sense of what it meant to have eternal hope. But as with many who grow up in the church, I had no real concept of what it was like to live without the Holy Spirit. And the Lord used this funeral to show me. He used this funeral to quicken my sense for how he views the lost. He showed me the vanity, the futility, the worthlessness of pleading with monks who ultimately had no power to change anything, nor even to comfort. And by contrast, he birthed in me a pastoral heart and a passion to preach the gospel. Over the years, the Lord has been faithful to sustain that calling. I began by praying for the group of friends that were at this funeral, and and by God's grace, every one of them came to know Christ, except, oddly enough, my, my Buddhist friend. In the late 90s, I was part of planting an English congregation in the Chinese church in Coquitlam. In the mid to late 2000s, my my wife and I were part of establishing the bridge in Kits. And of course, since 2017, we've been part of and we've been rejoicing at what God has been doing at Christ City, Kitsilano. You know, these are exciting times here at Christ City. In a few months, our church will be sending Jake and Maisie to plant Christ City East Vancouver. We're a church that is committed to faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to this city. And part of that involves planting neighborhood churches, that we might be a faithful presence in the communities to which we are called. We heard last Sunday at the family meeting, I know many of you weren't there because of the snow, but we heard that we've been a very generous church We've raised over the $100,000 that we had initially targeted for East Van to the glory of God. And as a church, we're, we're so encouraged to see that, that when Jake and Maisie go, they are not going to be going alone, but a significant number from among us, both from Kitts and South Van, including some of our very best, will be walking alongside with them intentionally bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the Hastings Sunrise neighborhood who need to hear about the freedom, the hope, the adoption, the promise that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Others of you, of course, will remain and commit to praying and supporting this important work. Now imagine this. Imagine that as, as Jake and Maisie and, and Ryan and Sarah and Joel and Becky and the, and the numerous others that have committed to going begin to form community groups. They begin to build into their neighbors' lives. And people begin to be receptive to the gospel. You know, Tom, the, the guy who's on the verge of losing his marriage, so obsessed with renovating his house and keeping up appearances with his neighbors, he finally realizes he needs Jesus. Or or Franco, the, the lapsed Catholic, whom Ryan befriends, 
leads to the Lord and for the first time finds freedom from his porn addiction. Or Cecilia, the confused student struggling with her identity, now finds a new identity in Jesus Christ. And imagine that Easter of 2020, you know, as Christ City, all three of our neighborhood churches, they gather at Christ, at, sorry, at Kitts Beach, and, um, and they're about to get baptized. They're about to publicly proclaim their putting on of Christ. And all of us, we're, we're standing on, on the beach, and we're, we're just overjoyed. We're jumping up and down. Because we are so in awe of the transformation that has taken place. But, as I've seen, unfortunately, far too many times, Tom and Franco and Cecilia begin to stagnate. As months pass, they they revert to their, their old patterns of life, of worship. Patterns that enslave. You know, instead of keeping up appearances in his house, well, Tom is keeping up appearances at church, just trying to appear when he needs to. Franco begins wandering the internet and wonders why we don't use the King James only. Cecilia takes her eyes off Jesus momentarily and finds herself confused about her identity again. Can you sense the collective anguish? Can you sense the concern? You see, like Jake and Maisie, like me, Paul had a deep sense of the Father's heart for the lost. He wanted them to know what it was like to find freedom in Christ alone and to live by the Spirit. This morning, as we look into the text, my aim is not just that you will gain an intellectual and theological understanding of Paul's concern for the Galatians, as important as that is, and we've been talking about about that for the last few weeks. But this is an argument from experience in these few verses. I want you, my aim is that you would feel And know Paul's pastoral heart for the Galatians. And in so doing that you would gain a greater sense of the Father's heart. And the means by which he uses to rescue and love a people for himself. If you're taking notes, we're going to look at the passage in three points. First, the problem. The problem, verses 8 through 10. And then the pastoral plea, verses 12 through 20. And then I'll tease out some implications for us in the third point. Recall that Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians to address a very specific problem. While most were Gentiles that had come to know freedom in Christ, a certain number of Jews in their midst had been teaching that in order to be considered, you know, part of the family... They also had to observe these customs and traditions of the Jewish law in addition to their faith in Christ. Well, Paul had been addressing the Galatians primarily from a theological point of view. He's been teasing out the doctrinal arguments for justification, for adoption, for sonship, 
for union with Christ. And Paul so keenly and cleverly uses Scripture to prove Scripture. And we get the impression until now that he's been primarily addressing these Judaizers by refuting their doctrinal claims one by one. But here in verses 8 through 20, we notice a change. You see, Paul gets personal. He's writing and making a heartfelt appeal directly to the Galatians themselves. He begins by making a distinction by what they, between what they once were and what they are now. Verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Notice that Paul uses the word enslaved to describe their former relationship and know, K-N-O-W, to describe their new relationship in Christ. This contrast is key. You see, there was a distinction between the way that the Jewish people related to God and how the Gentiles related to their idols. To the Jews, God was their God. He had covenanted with them. Even though this relationship until Christ came, as we've learned, was mediated, the predominant word for describing this relationship was, was no, K-N-O-W. Along with the word no was a connotation of intimacy. God knew his people as Adam knew Eve. There are, of course, numerous Old Testament references that talk about this. Right, let's just quickly look at two. Isaiah 43, 1 and 3, for instance. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Of course, the relationship was also personal. The famous Psalm, Psalm 23, 1, King David wrote, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Gentiles, on the other hand, worshipped all manner of gods, small g gods. In their pre-Christ days, many worshipped the Greco-Roman gods. Acts 14, 11 through 15, for instance, gives us a glimpse. At Lystra, the crowds mistook Paul and Barnabas for Zeus and Hermes. At Iconium, another southern Galatian city, archaeologists have found an inscription to, made to a goddess with four heads and ten breasts, while maybe symbolizing fertility and nursing. And then there was the astrological lores and worship of the moon and stars. But the relationship that the Gentiles and their gods was not like the Israelites and Yahweh, the true God. There was no covenant. It was rather a one-sided relationship of appeasement, perhaps. Appease the right things, offer the right sacrifices on the right days, and their gods might provide them with the material blessings, the status, the prosperity blessings due to them. These were the elemental principles of the world. These were the categories, the, the rules, a law, if you will, that the Gentiles followed prior to Christ. Uh, here's the problem. The Galatians transferred the manner of enslavement of their relationship with these idols 
to their relationship with God. You know, they wanted to make Jesus familiar. They exchanged the glory of God for the manageable. While they did not go back to worshiping their idols, the manner in which they related to God had changed. Instead of finding freedom, strength, worth in Christ alone, they reduced their relationship back to the observances of days and months and seasons and years. They really just wanted to worship God the same way that they worshipped their idols. Instead of worshipping God as adopted sons and daughters, full heirs according to the promise, as we've been learning about, people who call him Abba, Father, Daddy, Father, they resorted to adopting Jewish law and traditions amounting to enslavement. Adding the law to their faith was adding burden. How sad. By contrast, Paul hammers home this point, that in Christ, not only had the Galatians come to know God, they are known by God. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You see, Paul plays off of this dominant pattern in the culture. To be in the know was considered good. The Gnostics prided themselves in possessing secret knowledge. You know, even today, in many circles, secular and evangelical alike, in fact, even as I was preparing this sermon, I was almost wondering, like, did I, did I not talk about the knowledge part of it enough and talk too much about the experience? We, we tend to prize knowledge. But of course, Paul wasn't just talking about mere head knowledge. He was talking about knowing God in the heart. Do you really know God? The Judaizers thought they did because of law and pedigree. The Gentiles, having begun their life in the spirit, were now being wooed by these Judaizers. And meanwhile, Paul is saying, look, you've got it all wrong. Genuine children of God know him because he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, Galatians 3.6. We know him because he knows us. And that's been Paul's argument all along. That in Christ, because we have been justified, because he has imputed to us his righteousness, because he has positioned us by faith under the promise of Abraham, because he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, he knows us intimately. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a whole new level of knowing. This wasn't just head knowledge knowing. This wasn't just a mediated knowing. This is an immediate knowing. As a father knows his child, 
It is a knowing that is initiated by him. It is made possible by him, sustained by him, chosen by him. And Paul's like, what is your problem? You've come to know God, rather to be known by God. Why? Why would you go back to the way you once were? Don't you see that it is slavery? You know, for some of us, it's not difficult to imagine how such observances enslave. My mother-in-law, for instance, has very specific rituals and superstitions surrounding the celebration of Chinese New Year. These um, observances are meant to appease the family patriarchs in order that the coming year might bring about health and prosperity. Have you ever wondered what Gong Hei Fa really means? It's all wrapped up in a celebratory atmosphere and forget to observe one or two of the rituals or cut your hair off at the wrong time. And the celebration soon turns to fear and angst. You see, there's, a, there's always a binding of the heart in enslavement and a whole-bodied reaction to its violation. Well, in, in Western contemporary culture, it's a bit more difficult to imagine, isn't it? But is it? In the book, You Are What You Love, author James Smith argues that many of our habits today are simply another form of disguised liturgies that we actually worship, for instance, when we walk into a mall. Have you ever considered walking into a big shopping mall and ponder the beliefs, the practices, and the liturgies that are actually at work? Have you ever pondered how we might be enslaved to them? He writes this, quote, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in, cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. This is why worship is the heart of discipleship. Do you remember Tom? My hypothetical new Christian in East Van? Well, Tom's actually not fictitious. He just doesn't live in East Van. And I've changed his name. Several months after he was baptized, instead of realizing this truth, the truth of being adopted in Jesus Christ, he interacted with church and Jesus in much the same way as his old patterns. He began to attend less and less, eventually only on those special days like Easter and Christmas. He began to view the Bible as merely therapy to manage his anger and a moral code by which he would measure and fail at life. Oddly enough, he wanted to do great things for Jesus and the church. He was a stockbroker, and so he kept on thinking that if I could just make the next big trade, I will have so much money to give to Jesus, and the church will be able to do great things. If I, could just, if I could just finish the renovations on my house, then my wife will want to get back with me, and we'll all just have this happy, healthy family together, and we'll all go to church together. 
You see, the same elementary principles that once enslaved Tom characterized the way that he related to God. How about you? Our hearts are always tempted toward the familiar. We want to make Jesus in our image. Worship and relate to him on our terms. We think we know how the world works. And so we impose our old way of thinking, our old patterns, the elementary patterns of this world onto Jesus. But Jesus' cross turns all of that upside down. Jesus' cross demonstrates that he will have none of it. The gospel breaks all of our molds and patterns because at its heart, it's God who becomes like us that we might become like him. Unlike the elementary principles of the world, it doesn't enslave through appeasement. Rather, it is personal. So that brings me to my second point, the pastoral plea. Personal is how Paul pleads with the Galatians in verses 12 through 20. He gives a deep, heartfelt, pastoral, and personal plea. You can sense the pain in his heart as he talks about how he worries that he may have labored in vain. How he is again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. Oh, how heartbreaking it would be to deliver a stillborn child. Notice the language Paul uses as I read from verses 12 through 20 again. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, I entreat you. I entreat you. Become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you for no good purpose. They, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You see, Paul argues and he appeals to his experience and theirs. He recounts how they met, verses 13 through 15. You know, the details are a little bit vague. and There's, of course, much scholarly argument about exactly what was troubling Paul. And, but we can know this, that it seems that Paul was on the way to somewhere else, but his physical condition had prevented him from going further. And thus, like Paul, he, he recognized the providence of God and he used the opportunity to preach the gospel to the Galatians. And yet how blessed, these, 
How blessed were the Galatians to see through to Paul's heart. They didn't despise him because of his sickness, of his element. Instead, they saw the beauty of Jesus Christ in Paul. They received his message, the message of the gospel with open arms. And Paul was moved. Paul, it's, it, here it seemed that these Gentiles had the eyes of faith to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. Let me just pause here for a moment. Does that not describe you when you first heard the gospel? When you first came to know Jesus, what did you see when you looked upon the cross of Jesus Christ? Yes, you saw the crucifixion in all of its evil. The nails being driven into the Son of God. The crown of thorns pressed on his head. The blood dripping down. The figure of Christ, which Isaiah describes as having no outward beauty, now marred even more. Your sin being atoned for. Jesus suffering. But did you, did you also see the beauty and the glory of Christ? Did you also see the salvation of Christ? Did you also savor the aroma of Christ? Likewise, have you ever met a Christian that just radiates the glory of Christ regardless of their outward appearance? Is that not the greatest compliment that you can give a brother or a sister that you see Christ in them? Well, the Galatians were blessed to be able to see that in Paul. And yet somehow that blessedness had changed. These um, <laughs> clean-shaven Judaizers now moved in. Of course, they weren't clean-shaven, but <laughs> the Judaizers were much better dressed than Paul. No physical ailment, circumcised, clean, law-abiding, respectable people. And they made much of the Galatians for their own gain. And now the Galatians seem to have lost their way. And so Paul reminds the Galatians not only of this encounter with the beauty of Christ, but his own life. He says, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Can you see the irony? Isn't it ironic that Paul, a self-professed Hebrew of Hebrews, blameless in regards to the righteousness under the law, Philippians 3, became like a Gentile sinner by counting all of his pedigree, all of his law-keeping, all of his zeal, all of his status as a Jewish Pharisee. He counted all of that as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. And here were a bunch of Galatian Gentiles 
who, having seen the beauty of Christ and the freedom in Christ, are now trying to be more like Jews in order to win the favor of God. Clearly, they had missed the point. You see, when the gospel truly penetrates, it humbles us. It humbles us. Paul was apt to make this point when he pointed to his own example. He was the chief of enslaved sinners as he sought to persecute Christians when the Lord saved him. And so Paul makes this very clear in verse 12. He says, you did me no wrong. You did me no wrong. You see, in contrast to the Judaizers who were trying to appeal to their own offense and the Galatians' sense of pride, Paul, who should be offended, I mean, after all, he's the one that preached the gospel to them, is not. Instead, speaking the truth in love, his goal is that Christ would be formed in them. He points them back to Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, when we realize that it is God whom we have ultimately offended with our sin, but that he is the one whom, through Jesus Christ, offers us freedom and salvation instead of condemnation, we see it as good news. When we take our eyes off the pleasing of man and the enslavement that brings to the glory and freedom that is found in Jesus Christ alone, we realize how deeply the Father truly loves us. Which brings me to my third point, the implications. What can we learn from the Galatians' problem and Paul's plea? What can we learn? As my wife and I continue to be a faithful presence in Kitsilano, as I continue to discern and live out my calling, as Jake and Maisie go out uh, and others go out to East Van to plant a new church, and as you, Christ City, continue to preach the gospel, what can we learn? What can the Toms, Francos, and Cecilias learn? Let me close with three implications. Personal, pastoral, and praiseworthy. Personal, pastoral, and praiseworthy. The first implication is personal. If, if the Galatian Gentiles' efforts were in vain for seeking to adhere to the Jewish laws and customs, remember they were instituted by God as a means to point to his son Jesus, how much more in vain will our self-generated efforts of morality and law-keeping be? A great danger in living the Christian life is to become stagnant, to fall back on our natural worldly ways, to walk by sight. But we, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is the assurance that Christ has been and will be formed in us. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. So Christian, press on in faith. Stop trying to measure up by works. Stop. 
Stop the cycle of keeping up appearances. Stop trying harder. But rest in Jesus. Stop trying to justify yourself. Turn and be justified in Christ. As we've been saying and droning this, Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Pay, pay close attention to your heart. Having been saved by the gospel and having been adopted as a son and daughter, declared an, an heir through the promise, have you now turned back to slavery? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ captivate you in the same manner that it once did when you first believed? Do you see the beauty of Christ? Do people see Christ in you? Do they see that you are known by God? Are you willing to say, like Paul, become as I am? The second implication is pastoral. If Paul was willing to write so frankly, but in love to those whom he had led to Christ, how much more should we who have the full revelation of God and the testimony of his saints? Does your heart ache for the lost and the wandering? Do you speak the truth in love to those who are enslaved and point them to the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ? Ephesians 4.15 says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Are you willing, for the sake of Christ, to submit to biblical correction? Do others, do you seek others' input? their encouragement, their admonishment in your life? You see, the reality is that all of us have areas in our lives where we continue to be blind. All of us have areas where we resort to these elementary principles, where we kind of work by rote instead of trusting the freedom and providence in Christ. Just recently, this happened to me. I shared a burden about how to relate with my, my somewhat estranged dad who was coming into town. And in my small group, I had phrased my concern in a question, knowing it was a particular area of, en of enslavement for me. I was struggling with, well, what does walking by faith and not by sight actually look like in my particular situation? And this is where the beauty of Christ's body his church becomes apparent. A member of my community group lovingly encouraged and spoke the truth in love, not immediately after giving substantial thought and prayer, and gave me a thoughtful, apt, spirit-led answer. Likewise, are you willing, for the sake of Christ, to speak the truth in love to a brother or sister? even if it involves an uncomfortable conversation. Are we willing, Christ City, to walk alongside the Toms, the Francos, the Sicilias of our lives, even if it is for the 13th time, in order that we might bring about the unity of Christ? Do you desire 
for Christ to be formed in your unsaved neighbor? Have there been times you have said something but didn't? You should have said something, rather, but didn't. Are you willing to have a difficult conversation led by the Spirit? Or perhaps you're like me. There have been times when you've spoken truth all right, given them a piece of your mind, but not in love. Paul's attitude was to speak the truth in love. He traveled with an open hand, using planned and unplanned opportunities to proclaim the gospel. My wife, by the way, is way better at this than I am. Just the other day, she was pulling an all-nighter working uh, in Chilliwack. And despite being dead tired, she found the opportunity to share the gospel with a Polish cab driver at 5.30 in the morning. The last implication is, is praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. You know, there's an unwritten part of the story that penetrates, that pervades through these verses in uh, verses 8 through 20. And that is that the father, through Paul, is wooing the Galatians to himself. If Paul's heart was in anguish as a pastor and as an apostle, how much more so is the Father's heart, who does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Second Peter 3.9, who will leave the 99 and go after the one, Luke 15. Perhaps you're here today because you're one of the Toms, the Francos, and the Cecilias. You know, maybe your friend has been texting you for months, asking you to come, and you finally showed up today just to shut him up. Know this. It is because your friend wants more than anything for you to know the freedom that he has in Christ. But even more so, it is because the Father God is drawing you to himself. He desires more than your friend, more than me, more than Paul, to give you the gift of life in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I began by saying that my aim this morning is that you would not just gain a theological understanding of Paul's concern for the Galatians, but that you would feel Paul's pastoral heart for them. And in so doing, that you would gain a greater understanding of our Father's heart. And I pray that this has been conveyed this morning. May it be so. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.